It was the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. The USA gymnastics women's team was vying for the gold against their two nemeses, the Russians and the Romanians. And it all came down to one vault, one vault and Carrie Strug stood at the end of the runway. If she would have a positive, strong vault, they would win the gold, the USA. And she ran down the runway, and she did a beautiful vault. Unfortunately, she just didn't quite land it. And what is even worse is that she, on that vault, tore two ligaments in her ankle. Now, normally that would remove you from the competition, and it would be over, and and the gold would go to one of the other countries. But she wasn't going to just give up like that. So somehow she stood at the end of the runway to take her second vault, which she was due, because you get two. And so she stood again on this injured ankle at the end of the runway for her second and final vault. And here's what happened next. She prepared for her second and final vault. All eyes were on her as she sprinted down the runway. The U.S. had their first gold medal in the team all-around. <laughs> you can cheer. Um, the topic for today that we're taking a look at is holding nothing back. You could certainly see that spirit and the heart and the attitude and and the determination of Carrie Strug, but today what we're going to be thinking about asking ourselves is, is what's the level of our own determination? Taking a look at are we holding back, and if we're holding back, where is that, and what does that require of us? That's what we're going to be thinking about today. Now, of course, for us, there's no gold medal on the line There's no hopes of the whole nation on our shoulders. For us, it's much more significant than that. Today we are going to be continuing on in our sermon series, Romans, Grace Changes Everything. We have been going verse by verse through the book of Romans, and we've made our way all the way through the first two-thirds of the book, and, and we're just on our way toward the conclusion This is the the place that we have come today is Romans chapter 12. And I would invite you to go ahead and turn in your scripture journal or in your Bible and grab the outline or some way access this particular passage because it's a very, very important one. Because in this passage, we come to a major, major shift in this book. And we're going to take a look at it. And while you're finding your spot there, welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are checking this out online or in our classic venue or maybe on our Moon Campus, and and what an awesome time we had last weekend with our Moon Campus and our Chippewa Campus combined out at Darlington Lake. We had such an awesome service out there. That was so encouraging, and it was encouraging just to have everybody together. So welcome, Moon. Celebrate you. You had a number of people who were there, which was just awesome, and much of the worship team was, was the Moon worship team, and we just had a good time. But welcome to everybody. Romans 12 is where we're going to be today, and as, as, as Paul opens up this 
section he does with just this first little phrase that I want us to take a look at right as we get started. It is this phrase here. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. Now, we've seen this word as it begins chapters and in scriptures before. And whenever we see the word, therefore, we have said many times that we should ask, what is it? What is it, therefore? When you see the word therefore in the scripture, you always ask, what is it therefore? And usually it's taking a peek back at the verse that was right before it to, to explain or carry on from that verse or maybe the paragraph done before it and on some rare occasions, maybe the whole chapter. Well, here, this is different still because when Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, he's not just looking at the last verse. He's going back through everything that he has written in the letter up to this point. He's looking back on all 11 chapters that he has written and we have seen that it's deep in theology. All of what he has told us in those first 11 chapters, he's told us about the sin of mankind and how the gospel comes and meets us in that through the, through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. He's talked about the theology of election and the doctrine of sanctification and justification. He's helped us to understand grace and mercy. He's helped us to understand who we are in Christ and, and what that means for who we are and how we are to live our way forward. And we come to chapter 12, and now he's turning this corner, moving it from theology. We saw it to doxology at the end of chapter 11. Well, now he moves on in chapter 12 and essentially to say, because of all of these things that are true, because of all of what God has done for us, not only should we worship the end of chapter 11, we should also do these things. And he turns to some very, very practical things. The rest of the book of Romans essentially is giving us practical outworking for all of the theology that he has already given to us. And so we're going to dig into this, getting started right here in, in chapter 12 and the first eight verses are what we're going to be taking a look at today. He says, in light of all of these truths, this is how you should live. And here's a spoiler alert. He says what you should be doing is holding nothing back. That's what we're talking about today. Holding nothing back. Because here's the bottom line. If you hold back, it will hold up what God is holding out. God has something dynamic that he desires for all of us, what he wants us to live in. And Paul's going to help us to understand that, but we need to understand, if you hold back from giving yourself completely to God, it's going to hold up or stop what God is holding out that he desires for you. Instead, he's calling us to be holding nothing back. And so, as we dig into this, we can see that there's some things that we can glean from what Paul has to say to help us understand, well, what's it look like to not hold back? And that's what we're going to dig into. So there are a few of these different things there for your outline. Here's the first of those. It is that you will engage your whole self. If you're holding nothing back, you will engage your whole self. Romans 12 starts with one of the best known verses in all of Romans and all of this letter and perhaps in all of the Bible. See if you recognize it as we read it together. He writes this, verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's interesting telling that Paul, when he is looking for something to motivate his readers to action, to praise, to celebration, he turns to and talks about the mercies of God. 
Now, when he talks about the mercies of God to these readers, their minds would have also gone back to the first 11 chapters. All of these things that Paul had been informing them about and instructing them on, that would have been what's running through their minds here as well. They would have been thinking about the mercy and the grace and the love of God toward them. Paul knows that any genuine and lasting devotion on our part is going to be motivated out of gratitude for what God has done for us. However, there are other things that sometimes we sort of try to spin up as the motivation for living our Christian life. And you might recognize some of these. Unfortunately, all of these are faulty motives. They might seem good on the surface, but ultimately they're going to take us to a dead end. One of those that would be a false motivation, if you will, that we can bring to the table is to try to earn God's favor to secure our eternity. So our motivation is to try to get God to love us by the things that we do, which ultimately is not celebrating the mercy of God, it's not celebrating the love of God, it's undercutting it because it's saying essentially, that's not enough. I've got to do something else to add to that if it's going to be full and sufficient for me. So we think it's a positive motivation, but it's not. Another faulty motivation has to do with fear. We push ourselves forward so that we might demonstrate somehow to God that we're righteous because we're afraid of what's going to happen if we don't. Has the same problem. We're trying to take on ourselves the work that God has promised that he is going to do for us. And those first 11 chapters have demonstrated that for us. That God is the one who has justified us through the work of his son. He's the one who has made us righteous. We don't make ourselves righteous. So that's another faulty motive. Another faulty motive that sometimes we might use is to impress others or to maintain some sort of reputation. And so it moves you to act certain ways and to do certain things and to speak certain ways and show up at the right events. Why? Is it so that you might honor God? No, it's so that you might maintain a reputation. So it'll get other people to think certain things about you. In other words, it's about you. It's pride is what is motivating us there. And they all seem good. I mean, after all, I'm going off to the church this or the church that, or I'm, I'm doing this and it's a good thing to do. It's just it's motivated out of the wrong thing. And we get to the place where many of us who live most, most of our spiritual lives sort of in this false motivation or this false activity where we're not giving praise and glory to God. We're going through the motions. We're going through a pattern that we were taught when we were a child and we're just kind of propagating it. And then we pass it on to the next generation and they do the same thing. And we end up as people who really don't enter into worship. We enter in because we feel guilty if we don't. False motives is what he's talking about. So what's the solution? Well, recognize the mercies of God that have provided for all of the things in your life and your gratitude should then flow out of that. And what will that sort of genuine gratitude look like? He's already said it. What it'll look like is presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what he's leading us toward here. It's obviously playing off the Old Testament sacrificial system where when someone would bring their offering before God, maybe to find some forgiveness for their sin, they would come and they would bring an animal that was without blemish without spot, that was perfect in every way. It would have been costly to them to provide for these best of their lambs or their rams or their flocks, whatever it was. It would have been something that would demonstrate, though, that when it comes to honoring God, there was nothing that they were going to hold back. 
They were going to bring it all. This is not them bringing leftovers. It's not them bringing second class anything. They're taking right out of the very best and they're bringing it to God. And so what Paul is saying, that's the imagery. He knew the Jews knew it. They grew up in that. He knew the Gentiles were also familiar with it. He said, now that's what I want of you also when he talks about you as a living sacrifice. It's offering your best. It's holding nothing back. Holding nothing back. Not bringing anything second class. Not bringing anything that is the leftovers of what we have so that we might give God out of the best of all we are, our worship, our adoration, our service, our celebration, our gifts, whatever it might be. Right off the top, the best that we have. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Now, is that what we do? Are there plenty of times when what we give is the time that we've got left over? I'm going to do the things that I want to do, and if there's some left, then I'll engage in something else. Or we bring the resources that we have left over. There are certain things I want for my own life, for living for myself, and then what I have left, then I'll consider whether or not I ought to come and make that as a contribution toward God. Oftentimes, this is the way that we live. Now, we can be thankful that God didn't ask us to bring a standard sacrifice or make ourselves a, a standard sacrifice because you can make that one once and then that's it. He says, I want you to bring a living sacrifice. I want you to make yourself a living sacrifice before God. The problem with that is that living sacrifices oftentimes get up and walk off the altar. And we have done that far too often. So Paul is calling you to invest your whole self, to engage your whole self serving and giving and loving for his purposes. And friend, this might be, this might be the one reason that you're here. This might be the reason that God, through His Spirit, prompted you to come and to be here in this place, in these moments, is so that He could say that to you, so that He could challenge you with the idea of what is it that you're really giving over to God. Are you making yourself a living sacrifice, or are you just giving something that is left over of time and of resources, of heart, of life, of spirit? What is it? It might be that that is what God is saying to you. And if you think that that is what he's saying, feel free to sort of disconnect from everything I'm going to say from now on. And you just deal with that between you and God. Because if you can walk out today in a greater spirit of giving yourself fully over to God, then so be it. Then that would be a win of all wins. Verse 1 then ends with this reminder that our sacrifice to God is an expression of our worship to him. It's our spiritual worship, he says, which is powerful, that is strong, but there's actually more here than meets the eye. If you look into the footnotes of your ESV Bible, unfortunately the the journals don't have all of the footnotes there, but if you look into the footnotes, you can see that it gives another rendering of this, which is rational service. The word here literally means logical. Paul is saying that sacrificing your life for God because of the mercy of God is the only logical response. It's the only thing that makes any sense is what he is trying to point out to us here. If you hold back and only give a part of yourself to God, he says, you're not thinking rationally. Because as we've said, if you hold back, it will hold up what God is holding out. If you hold back, it'll hold up what God is holding out and desiring for you. If you're a follower who's holding nothing back, Paul says you'll engage your whole self. He goes on and says there's another one. You'll also transform your whole mind. 
That's Paul's point in verse 2, which is every bit as convicting as verse 1, just warning you. He writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When Paul tells us to not be conformed to this world, it's not that difficult to figure out what he means. You can think around you. You can think, well, here are a number of things. I, that's something I shouldn't do. That's something I shouldn't be conformed to. Now, certainly there are some things that have changed between the first century when he wrote this and the 21st century, but I'd suggest to you that the similarities are greater than the differences because ultimately what he's dealing with here is the heart of mankind, a sinful heart, and sinful hearts are just as sinful today as they were in the first century. And so in that regard, we're very much in the same boat as they were 2,000 years ago. We continue today to be driven by greed and by pride and, and by self-righteousness. We continue to deal with things like immorality and sexual sin and envy and self-worship and racial prejudice. All of these things continue to spin up. Nobody is prejudiced toward somebody else because they were born that way. If that's a spirit that is in your heart, it's something that you were taught. It's something that you learned you learn by conforming to other people. Maybe the circle that you grew up in had a certain attitude. And you learned that sort of prejudice toward another person or toward another group of people. And so what Paul is saying is don't be conformed. Don't give yourself into the way that the world would be pulling you off in its own direction. Instead, look at what God is calling you to do, the way he puts it, is and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word Paul uses here for being transformed is metamorpho, which of course is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. That's right. And whenever you think of metamorphosis, your mind may go to, like mine does, the very hungry caterpillar. The very, there it is, the very hungry caterpillar, right? Because that's what the book talks about. It talks about this metamorphosis. It talks about this transformation that happens from the caterpillar changing into the butterfly. And so maybe your mind doesn't go there, but, but mine does. And uh, that's what uh, the process is. It involves the release of enzymes to the point where essentially what the caterpillar does in the cocoon is it, is it digests itself. And it becomes essentially this caterpillar soup, which I know sounds really disgusting, which is probably why the very hungry caterpillar doesn't go into all of those details. But essentially, that is what is going on. And then the cells are rearranged, and what comes out of that cocoon is something that is completely different, totally changed from what it was when it went in. Some of the, the basis of it is, is the same, but essentially it is a completely different entity when it comes out. And that's what Paul is getting at here. For the caterpillar, it's more than just going into the cocoon and putting on some wings and, and breaking out. It's more than that. It's a transformation. It's a metamorphosis that has happened in that place, demonstrating this real and lasting change. And that's what Paul is saying needs to happen in us. Now, I know that that sounds like a big thing and a lot of change to happen, but, but that's not beyond what God's ability is to do in us. It's not beyond what the Spirit of God alive in us is able to do. He comes and he brings transformation. That's the work that he does naturally 
in us. And so he is saying, take a look. Where are you? And that's what I'm calling you to do. Take a look. Where are you when it comes to giving in to things or conforming to things of the world? Have you been completely transformed in giving your life, first of all, over to Jesus, as well as being transformed in the things that might otherwise be keeping you from following wholly and completely after God, giving yourself as a living sacrifice complete. Paul just keeps nailing this and digging in on it deeper and deeper and deeper because he knows that we wrestle with it. He knows even if you are a faithful follower of Christ that you can be in the place where there's still something you're conforming to, where he's saying you need to be transformed, you need to be changed, and that's what he's calling us to do. And if we do so, he says the payoff is enormous. He says you'll be able to, here at the end of the verse, end of verse 2, discern, you'll be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Trying to determine the will of God Maybe for you, maybe you've experienced it can be a little bit frustrating at times. And I understand that. I get that. It can be frustrating until we transform our mind and our spirit and submit ourselves to God's leading. But once we do, you're going to find all of a sudden it starts to become a bit more natural. In fact, Augustine used to say this. He said, love God and do whatever you please. And what he means by that is if you really genuinely love God and have been transformed by His Spirit, then you can do whatever you please to do because whatever you please to do under that context is going to be pleasing to God. It's going to bring honor to Him. That's how powerful it is. Holding nothing back will lead you to engage your whole self, to transform your whole mind, he says. Then there's one more, and that is to activate your whole call. Your whole call involves service to the body of Christ, and as Paul goes on, he addresses how we're equipped for that service. And so what he's going to get into now in some of these next verses are different spiritual gifts that are given to people in Christ. And a spiritual gift is just a special ability that you have been given as a believer in Jesus to bring benefit and blessing to the body and your responsibility to carry that forward. Now, it's interesting that as he gets into this topic, he actually begins by talking about, begins this little section, this paragraph, by talking about pride. And when you see that, it's kind of like, well, well, that seems a little bit out of place. I thought you were going to be talking about spiritual gifts. But actually, it's not out of place at all, because if you stop to really ponder it, the thing that would hinder us or does hinder us from experiencing and practicing the spiritual gifts oftentimes is pride. Because we have a problem in the church universal today, and it can cre certainly creep into our local church as well, this idea of individualism. We want to do things on our own. We want to live out our own life. We want to be in control of our own circumstance. So the idea that there is somebody who has something in the body that I lack doesn't register with us. It doesn't resonate. It's something we actually push away because we don't like to identify we have a lack of anything, that there's anything that somebody else can bring to the table that is going to bless me or move me in a way that I can't do for myself. And so we push it away and we resist it. And the idea of individualism oftentimes says, why do I need to be responsible for you on the side of thinking about what your gifts might provide for somebody else? Why do I need to be concerned for you? Shouldn't you take care of yourself? I'm taking care of myself. And so it all stands against this idea of actually leaning into our gifts and exercising them one with another toward the benefit and the building up of the body. And so in that regard, with that in mind, Paul says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, admitting where we're strong, admitting where we're weak. 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, just a quick word here about this measure of faith that he mentions. On the surface, it kind of sounds like, well, there's a measure of faith that he gives to everybody in a certain way. And so it sounds to us, and maybe this is the time that, or the way that you've always heard it taught or you always have interpreted it for yourself, that there's a different measure of faith he gives to everybody. To somebody, he gives a lot of faith, and to somebody else, he just gives a little bit of faith. And whether you get a lot or whether you get little is just kind of the luck of the draw. But I don't really think that that's what he's talking about here. I don't think that's how he's using. He's probably not talking about the amount of faith that is given to one person versus another person, but instead using this as just a, a way to express a standard of measurement. A standard of measurement. In other words, the point isn't that there are some super faith saints and there's some other garden variety faith saints but that all who acknowledge Jesus as the Lord have been given a saving faith. And along with that comes benefits. Along with that comes privileges. Along with that comes opportunity. Along with that comes gifts that we can take and employ. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how long you, you spent in life until you came to Christ. Once you did, you have this measure of faith that you've been given, that you've been blessed with, that you can take and carry forward for blessing in the body, for living as one who is sacrificed to Christ. You're not in a place where you can't do as much as somebody else because they've been given a greater measure of faith. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's rather saying we're all at the same starting point because we all have all of the blessing of faith that God has provided for us. That means we all have a contribution to make that's equally important even if it's not exactly the same. Even if we're offering different things, we can bring that for the blessing of the body. Verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul likes, loves, in fact, this idea of the church as the body of Christ. And he uses that oftentimes because it resonates with us, right? You can easily picture and think of, well, yeah, different parts of the body need to operate and work together in order for, for there to be a genuine outworking or in order for the body to thrive as it were. And if you think about the many things that you do during a day, you're involving so many of different parts of the body working cooperatively. Just think about it in relationship to the golf swing, for instance, all right, you need your legs to give yourself a nice, a nice firm foundation to work together with your arms to get the takeaway just right and to generate power in, in your swing. You need all of that. You need your hands to hold on to the club. You need your eyes to keep an eye and watch the ball while you're trying to hit it. That's some of our problem. You need your foot to kick the ball out of the weeds into the fairway to get a better lie. You need your mouth to lie about your score. Golf is a full-bodied activity is kind of what we are saying here, right? And just as the physical body needs all of those parts working together, what Paul is saying here is your spiritual body is the same way. You need all of the parts operating together that we might be able to thrive in our spiritual walk. And when you disconnect from the spiritual body, you disconnect from the means through which God oftentimes, in fact, typically ministers to you. And sometimes we walk around frustrated or wondering why we can't hear God when really what the circumstance is is that we've isolated ourselves apart from those through whom God might be using to bring the word that he wants to speak to us. Because so often what God does is he uses the people of the body of Christ to minister to the body of Christ. And 
and to get his work done. And when we isolate ourselves, we say, I don't want to listen. I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm not going to show up. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't need you. I'm too proud to, to walk into that situation. We're cutting ourselves off from the very thing that we need and oftentimes the very thing that we criticize God for not providing. It's there if we'd enter in, if we'd, if we'd reach toward it, but oftentimes we don't. There are gifts we have to offer to one another. There are gifts that we have to receive that somebody else is exercising on our behalf or toward us. And in verse 6, Paul mentions some specific gifts. He writes, look at it, 6 and following. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy or proclaiming the truth of God in proportion to our faith. If service, you know what that is, in our serving. If one, the one who teaches, whether adults, kids, one-on-one, large group, whatever that would be in teaching, in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes financially in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There are seven different gifts that are listed right there. Now, that's not an exclusive list of gifts. There are others. There are other places in the scriptures that we can actually go and see them. This is Romans 12. Also, Rome, or 1 Corinthians 12 has a good list of gifts that you can read about there. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. They're all different passages where you can read. And none of them are the same. And no one of them contains all of them. You can go and you can kind of make a compilation of those. And many people have done that. And they've come up with different numbers. Maybe it's 19 or 18 or somebody might get 21. And and you kind of uh, look at those different gifts. And it's important that you would take a look and that you would consider what are the gifts or the gift that God might have given to you. Because Paul says that all of us have at least, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you at least have one gift. And maybe more than one gift. And it's important that we try to figure out what those are. Would you say that you know what your gifts are? And if you would say, no, I really don't, or I've, I've never really been able to sort that out or figure that out, my guess is you're feeling, feeling at least a little bit stalled or stagnant in your spiritual walk. Because these are things that God has given you, specifically through the Spirit, that you would use to fulfill your purpose in the body of Christ. And so if you're, you're standing or not exercising those, either because you don't know what they are, or because you might know or you might suspect, but you're just not putting those into practice, then there's going to be this situation where you're going to feel as though somehow you're a little bit out of step, you're stagnant. Things just aren't happening the way that you might expect them to happen. You see, God didn't save you just to make you a trophy of his grace that he might put up on the shelf that we can all admire. No, God saved you so that he might put you into service. And if you're not in service, if you're not using the things that God has given you, then my guess is that your spiritual life is a little bit boring. It's a little bit boring because you're not connected to the things that God has created you and fashioned you to do. You were made for more than just coming to church and sitting and listening dutifully every few weeks or even every week. Whenever you come to church, you should ask yourself, how is it that I might be able to give, not just how am I able to get? Whenever you walk out of a service or when you look across the room and you see people who are there or when you look across your living room if you're at home, or whatever it is, you, you should be asking yourself, how is it that I might be able to bring a blessing to that person? What's a word that I might be able to speak that would encourage that person? What do I have to offer to that 
person? How might I be able to serve that person? Thinking actively whenever we're together on how we might give instead of how we might just get. Now, I certainly hope that you get something when you come week by week, but here's the thing. Sometimes what you get that inspires you the most comes through what you give. Sometimes on your way home, it's not what you heard, what you maybe received that blesses you the most. Sometimes what you get that inspires you the most comes through what you give, the way that you've ministered. In fact, oftentimes I find that that's the case, that I feel so much more blessed when I've been able to bless somebody else Though I do benefit, certainly, and have from many of you in receiving at the same time. So then, do you know what your gifts are? And how do you go about figuring that out if you don't? Well, there are a number of different tests that are out there, quizzes you can take that will help you to work your way through some questions and it kind of spits out, here's maybe what your gift is. And, and some of those are fine, and you can go ahead and use that. I want to offer you a couple of other methods that you might try as well. One of them comes from, I was reading, I'm not completely sure, I think it might have been J.D. Greer, but I'm not 100% sure. But I picked up one, and it basically um, is uh, this sort of Venn diagram that you see here. And a standard Venn diagram with the circles, and it deals with some different topics. One is ability. So you ask yourself, well, what abilities do I know that I have? And you, and you write those down. What are the things I'm good at? What are the things that I'm capable of doing? And you just kind of make a list of that. Another is, is affinity. What experiences do I have that might be a benefit or might give me some special empathy to some other person? What has God taken me through? What are, maybe you've gone through some significant health issues or the loss of a friend or the loss of a spouse or, or a wayward child, any of a number of things that might put you in a place where you have the opportunity to encourage somebody, use the gift of encouragement, or to teach somebody, or maybe exhort somebody when you see what's, what's going on them because of an affinity that you might share with the circumstance of that person. You can write down some of those things. Affirmation is, well, where are some things or places where people have affirmed skills and abilities and talents that are present in you? Because sometimes other people can see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And sometimes you see things in yourself that somebody else isn't able to see. You might think you have the gift of singing, but to date nobody has given anybody else the gift of listening to you sing, right? I mean, that might be part of it too, so we need to consider that. But you make a list of all of these different things, and then where these three things come together, and if they do, and if you have that sort of thing, they come together, you can know that this is something where you're almost 100% certain that you have a gift, or gifts that come together so that you understand that. But I'd take it even a step further than what, what the diagram showed originally, and I would suggest that even if you have connection of any two of these, that those are also areas where you can be pretty confident that there's some measure of gift that is there that you can lean into that much more. If, if your ability and the affinity come together, that even there, that would be certainly a place where you could acknowledge that there's some gifts. But I've got another method that uh, I oftentimes purport or push forward and encourage people to consider, which is even simpler than that, and it is this, where you see a need, where you see an opportunity for service, start serving and see what happens. Get engaged and see what happens. And if you find that you're 
kind of good at doing that or that people are blessed by you doing that, then you can be pretty confident that there is some measure of at least ability, if not spiritual gift, that is present in that place. Now, what's incumbent upon you to do to figure that out? Get involved. Do something. Spiritual gifts, my experience is, and working with I don't know how many people, my experience is people never determine their gift from their living room chair. You never figure it out just by trying to think it through. You figure it out by getting involved and seeing where you're useful, seeing where people are blessed, seeing where you demonstrate some sort of ability. A lot of times when we get engaged in something, we recognize we have a gift we didn't even know we had. We didn't know we were any good at doing that, but lo and behold, here we are. And if you just sit back, if you just hold back, you're never going to come to experience that. Because remember, if you hold back, it will hold up what God is holding out. So I would just ask you, as we think about all these things that Paul has taken us through, where is it that you're holding back? Where is it that there may be something going on where you are conforming to a pattern that is around you? I don't mean because there are drug dealers in the world that you're getting sucked into drug dealing. I'm not suggesting, that might be your situation, but I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily that there are are areas where we can conform just to this pull, and sometimes it's so subtle and we don't even really recognize that we've been pulled in, but if we or stop or God might reveal through his spirit that this is an area where you really haven't been transformed. You haven't given yourself fully over to what God would. So to do some examination, what would it be? Where would it be that you need a transformation to happen to take you from where you've been doing some, some conforming over to what God would have for you? We need to recognize that conforming is sometimes a a small thing, or it seems a small thing to us, and so all we need to do is a little tweak to get back. He's not talking about tweak. He's talking about transformation, which is completely different. It's like the caterpillar doesn't just put on wings and break out. It's totally transformed, and that's what he's inviting us into as well. And ask yourself also as we evaluate this, where is it? And can you demonstrate, can you, can you point to the fact that you have made yourself, you've offered your, presented your body as a living sacrifice, giving ourselves fully and completely over to God? Is that something that you would say is true of you? And if you cannot say it's true of you, then what Paul is urging us to is he says, because of all of the mercies of God, because of his grace, because of his goodness, because of his love, because he went to the cross to save you from sin. Is this not what he deserves from us? Paul says, because of all of this, how are you responding? Have you made your life a living sacrifice, completely sold out to him? And there he wraps up at least that verse by offering worship which, as we have said, is always the appropriate thing to do coming out of the study of God's Word. And so we're going to do that together here as well. We want to worship, and as we do so, I want you to do so in the spirit, in the attitude, in the mindset of giving yourself fully and completely over to God and offering your worship of not just your words, in your voice, and your sound, but from the heart, giving it over fully and completely 
to him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this call that comes from Paul, something that is strong and dynamic and is asking not just something of us, it's asking everything from us. And God is one who has every right to ask it because he's the one who has given us life. And shame on us if we've taken that life and we've gone and used it to conform to things that are against the purpose and the will of God. Lord, in these moments, may we be, one, may we be ones who give ourselves fully and completely as living sacrifices to you in our minds, in our hearts, in our thoughts from our lips in our worship. Lord, we come to offer you all that we are, all that we have for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together, friends. Would you stand? As we worship together, I just want to encourage you, if there's anything you've been holding on to, to lay it at the foot of the cross and fully surrender as we sing this together. You are my God, you are enough.
Take it all, take it all, my 